It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. For at least the last year, the Trump administration has been dead set against Chinese telco giant Huawei and its 5G technologies. Well, we've not changed on Huawei. We're not allowing Huawei into our country. We're not changed on that. We can do business for non-security things with Huawei because that's, you know, we'll do that. But anything having to do with national security, we're not dealing with Huawei. The U.S. government is in a race with China to provide the world with 5G networks. Some call it a new arms race, as both Washington and Beijing go from country to country trying to negotiate for its companies to provide the future of the internet's architecture. Part of that has been Trump himself slagging Huawei and undermining the Chinese company as a national security risk. The allegation being the company would give the Chinese government a main line into spying on countries across the world. While some experts agree those fears are well-founded, some of the bravado is undoubtedly part of the game of geopolitics. Well, today on the show, we have Andy Purdy, Chief Security Officer for Huawei Technologies USA, to discuss the concerns around the company's technologies. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So Andy, thanks for coming on Cyber to speak with us. You're welcome. So, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of conversation around Huawei and national security in the last few months, I'd say probably even the last year, uh, specifically around 5G and the race surrounding it, and how the Trump administration has sort of likened it to a bit of a, almost like a, pre a, a modern arms race. So I just wanted to ask you, I mean, what do you make of many allegations flying around that Huawei does indeed pose a national security threat to the US and to its allies? I think the overarching situation is the geopolitical situation between the U.S. and China, and the concerns the U.S. has about China, uh, concerns about the rise of China militarily and economically vis-a-vis -vis the United States. Um, the, that geopolitical situation has really created a situation where um, the U.S. government is not willing to look dispassionately uh, at either the potential benefits of, uh, of our technology or the the available uh, risk mitigation mechanisms uh, that can provide uh, assurance and transparency. That's in terms of our ability to do business in the United States and allied countries, but also on the issue of the ability of nearly 300 companies to sell the Huawei. They're not willing to look at the facts about whether that in fact will hurt China by hurting Huawei, which appears to be the intent, uh, or whether in fact the, uh, the harm that's going to flow from this both short-term and long-term, it's going to hurt Americans and American jobs a lot more than it's going to hurt Huawei or China. So, you know, this threat of Huawei is not something that's new. Uh, it, it, if you look back as far as 2014, 2013, 2012, Huawei was being banned from bidding on the emergency grids of different Five Eyes countries or NATO allies. I guess the question is, I mean, back then they were well-founded and governments had serious suspicions around some of the, the bug doors or the back doors that could be inside some Huawei technology, specifically cell phones. And this, this is before we were even talking about something like 5G networks. I guess like what, what has changed in you know, less than a decade that would provide enough, enough assurances that you, your technologies are not going to be used by the Chinese government to undertake any spying? Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the context of, of the last decade. Well, the, 
uh, the last decade has seen uh, the evolution of the technology, the rise of China economically and militarily, uh, the, the rise of uh, uh, Huawei uh, in communication networks uh, around the world, uh, and the evolution toward 5G. And so when you put all those factors together, um, particularly where there's this geopolitical situation where folks won't really focus on, on what the facts are or the benefits or risk mitigation, um, you see a situation where uh, cybersecurity, which really has not mattered very much in the United States since um, we released the U.S. National Strategy to Secure Cyberspace in early 2003, President Bush issued that. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Um, there's been an awful lot of talk about cybersecurity, um, but for the most part, people really don't care about it. You have data breaches, you have some ransomware attacks that have significance, you have potential physical consequences from cyber attacks. Some of the examples you're well aware of from years ago, the, the Saudi Aramco attacks, uh, Stuxnet, uh, for example. Um, so we're moving into new technology where uh, cybersecurity, uh, particularly uh, availability and the integrity of the data on which everything relies is going to matter a whole lot more than it's mattered in the last 16 or 17 years. Because um, both the benefits and the potential risks are going to be a whole lot greater. And governments, private organizations, individuals are, are going to come depend over the next three to five years, are going to become dependent on information communication technologies in a way that we never have before. So disruptions are really going to matter. Uh, our growing dependence is really going to matter. So the things that we are going to, in the, in the next three to five years, really depend on, we're going to need them available. And we're going to need to make sure that the data on which they function, such as sensors, uh, sensors to machine, machine to main, machine communication, robotics, automation, and in moving into uh, artificial and augmented intelligence, we're going to need to have that stuff up and running. So within that larger context, um, there, is, uh, there has been an unwillingness. So, so stuff matters more. And there's been, fortunately, the U.S. government is starting to pay attention to the importance of information communication technologies, the importance of it in terms of competitiveness with China, the importance of it in terms of actually national security of the United States, because economic strength uh, directly translates to, uh, to national security strength. So when you look at things like the standards efforts, you, you have fundamental mischaracterizations, and partly maybe it's because U.S. government has not really been very involved in the 5G standards efforts. I'm, I'm told that that's going to change, which is great news, I think, for the whole ecosystem, um, that, um, that there's a mischaracterization of what's different under 5G. And the mischaracterization has to do with things like automatic updates, or one State Department official said we do our updates of our telecom equipment from China, which is just a demonstrably uh, false statement, and a misstatement about the nature of the networks Right now, the architecture build on 3G and 4G, it's going to be that architecture for, for, for years to come. And the alleged change between the core and the radio access network, the core being the most sensitive, uh, the radio and security interface between the core and the radio access part, and then security interface to the users, uh, Internet of Things, and, and so forth. They're saying that there's going to be a merger of the core and the RAN. That is fundamentally incorrect. And so what they're taking is something that's true which is that the core, which is a, 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 a the, the core is going to get physically closer to the edge. But the distinction between 
the virtual distinction between the core and the radio access network is in fact envisioned to be maintained and should be maintained for security. And so the 5G standards are gonna provide greater security enhancements. So the geopolitical situation is, is encouraging or letting people, and perhaps with a lack of scrutiny, letting folks uh, not talk about the true facts, uh, I probably shouldn't talk about true facts in the current political environment, not talk about the facts um, and not be willing to have discussion. So for example, that issue about blocking these American companies to sell the Huawei, to sell demonstrably non-sensitive technology. Um, is it going to potentially uh, risk 40 to 50,000 direct American jobs, uh, which could directly impact the US industrial pace? Um, or is something this, this blind threat from China and so the US government wants to hurt China by hurting Huawei? So the last 10 years have seen an awful lot of changes. We're gonna see a lot of changes in the next three to five years, but the geopolitical situation has certainly clouded and blinded uh, the ability and willingness of folks to look at to look at facts um, that can really make a difference, not just uh, for whether Huawei can do business or Huawei can buy, but really the competitiveness of the U.S. Uh, and the strength of the U.S. semiconductor industry. I guess I'm, I'm hearing you on all this, and, and I, I, I agree that there has been a, a real change in the last 10 years of the geopolitical situation, and, and also China's standing and producing technologies for the world. But at the same time, you know, there has been security researchers who have found bug doors and back doors in Huawei technologies in the past. And, you know, you're going to have people in the intelligence community who are going to say, what assurances does the U.S. government have and its allies that this won't happen again from Huawei? And it won't happen again in something far more sensitive, entire networks, 5G networks, which, we, which you and I both know, it's the future of, of telco. What is so, yeah, we're, we're really talking about 5G enabled technologies. 5G is going to help enable uh, these very important technologies that I mentioned uh, of how dependent uh, we're, we're, we're going to become. And so all the more that we're going to have to have it. So let me let me say, first of all, as, as you know, there are at least five nations of the world that have the ability to virtually implant hidden functionality and malware in hardware and software. So the fact that that's the case, blocking us is not going to address that larger issue. That larger issue exists in the global ecosystem. And so when you look at, and what we're suggesting is that when you look at the risk and just take the, a piece of the shared responsibility, which is the telecom equipment suppliers, the larger shared responsibility, as you know, has to do with the telecom and mobile operators and their fundamental role in managing the networks, managing access, uh, which is critically important, uh, both in terms of whether a company has voluntarily or by force of pressure from the government put in backdoors that can launch attacks or, or steal intellectual property or whatever. The fact is the nation states can do it without permission. And so when you look back, for example, although it was you know 2014 or so when Snowden uh, revealed the, uh, the, the information about Operation Shot Giant, uh, the, 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 the PRISM uh, situation, even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched and recorded. And they, Edward Snowden may have gone to ground since he gave this interview, but he's the source of these new allegations. The former CIA analyst has leaked what he claims is a secret intelligence document to the German magazine Der Spiegel. It claims America's intelligence agency, the NSA, planted bugs in the EU offices in New York and Washington, hacked into the EU's internal computer system, 
and its phone network in Brussels. And the situation about backdoors in Cisco products, the question was, well, did Cisco give them permission or did the US government hack in? My point is, I, I don't know. Um, in a way, it doesn't matter. And so what I'm suggesting is the kind of approach we're talking about is the kind of approach that's gonna make sure we manage risk relative to all the suppliers. And so in terms of your specific question, uh, and but it, it's relevant to the ability, let's say hypothetically of China to hack into Nokia and Ericsson stuff, is that, okay, uh, on the question of whether the China government can force us to put in back doors or whether the China government can hack into us, uh, or whether the China government, because of all the operations of Nokia and Ericsson in, in China, can force them to do things or can later hack in, the kinds of mechanisms that are necessary and are available. We can prove, and in the world, maybe a lot of times it's it's hard, if not impossible, to prove a negative. We can prove too, too negative. We can put in place mechanisms, and again, these need to be applied to Nokia, Ericsson, or other competitors. We can put in, in place proven mechanisms with third-party oversight to address the two fundamental issues of the U.S. government. One, the possibility that at, at the behest of China, we would put in backdoors hidden functionality in our products uh, that could later be used to launch devastating attacks or, or steal intellectual property or, uh, or, or, or spy. We can put in place third-party mechanisms with government oversight or, or independent monitoring to demonstrate there are no backdoors in those products. And companies close to the intelligence community, community know that's possible and available. And that so when we prove there are no backdoors in our products, and this applies to software updates as well, contrary to some of the some of the statements, we prove there are no backdoors. We have proven on that first of two fundamental points that China didn't force us to put in backdoors. You may disagree with my logic, but I want to make sure you follow it. We can prove there are no backdoors, so that proves that China didn't force us to put them in. The, the other fundamental concern of, of, the, of the U.S. government is that, uh, that China would use us or, or, or we would let them use us uh, to steal intellectual property, steal sensitive data and send it back to China. So on this second fundamental point, that is completely controlled by the mobile and network operators, the, the, the access. When you combine it with the point I just made about backdoors and, and evaluation, that there are mechanisms in place uh, for those customers where uh, we are under contract to continue to support the equipment after it's deployed uh, and that we're uh, to help service it or to help supply provide software updates. There are mechanisms in place and hopefully our competitors do the same thing. And I, I'm pretty confident that the telecom and mobile operators in the United States require this is that we can prove that. So, so for example, when our computer specially configured laptops uh, are accessed under the strict protocols of the telecom or mobile operators, then you can have a process where every keystroke of that session is recorded so that you can fully reconstruct those sessions. So we can prove that we are not improperly accessing the, the limited kinds of sensitive data we, we have access to in the radio access network part. We can prove we're not improperly accessing the data and we can prove we're not sending the data back to China. So by that, we can prove the negative. We can prove that the China government did not force us, is not forcing us to spy or, or steal intellectual property or or, uh, or, or or that kind of thing. So that's the fundamental thing we can and should do. That's the kind of fundamental thing that our, our, uh, our competitors need to do as well. But, you know, you, I agree with you when you say you look at some of the Snowden revelations and it's very, I mean, assumedly, and it's, it's popularly accepted that the NSA worked with several different telcos and different companies to spy on on different countries all over the world. 
mean, doesn't that prove that even in secretive or open agreements not to do that sort of thing, pressures come from domestic governments like the US on their own telcos and their own technology companies and firms to allow them to spy on things? And the same could be true for China and Huawei? Absolutely. But the mechanisms I'm talking about can prove that's not happening. And the fact is, it's not just a question of us letting a government do that. The fact is, governments have the ability to do that without our permission. And that's part of the broader cyber ecosystem issues that are largely being ignored. And this country needs to lead internationally compared to what we're doing to help reduce the frequency, impact the risk and malicious activity, to help make it easier to force nation states and major sophisticated actors to force them to use sophisticated means to do bad things. Right now, there's so much white noise in cyberspace, they can use unsophisticated means to do a whole lot of stuff. And we need to create mechanisms for independent uh, attribution of the source of malicious activity and thefts of intellectual property. And those government and ISPs and telecom and uh, network operators who may be allowing the bad folks to operate from their particular geographic region. We need to hold folks accountable. We need to be able to call BS on, on, on governments that are doing bad stuff. And it applies across the board. What do you make of uh, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt and some of his comments surrounding China and Huawei recently? He said, quote, there's no question that information from Huawei routers has ultimately ended up in the hands that would appear to be the state. Yeah, can you finish the quote? <laughs> However that happened, we're sure it happened. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so my point is, and, and, and he doesn't say when in, in history he believes that happened, whether it was when he was at Google or, or not. Um, but my response, is, and I, I put up a couple comments in, in social media about it, is, Mr. Schmidt, if you have proof that, Huawei's done this or doing this. Don't you owe it to the rest of the world to provide notice? He's claiming our routers have these problems, have this fact that this has happened. We're all over the world. Speak up. Call it out. If we have employees and, and companies like, you know, Ericsson got in a whole lot of trouble not, not too long ago. That is about the shortest uh, story that, uh, that I've ever seen, um, in, you know, in terms of their improper conduct. Call us out. If some Huawei employees did somewhere in the world or in headquarters did this fast up, what is the possible reason not to point out that this problem exists? You've got governments and private organizations using routers around the world. If they're a problem, call it out. And I do not believe that he has evidence. And, you know, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the NTIA letter you may have seen, the June 16th letter that uh, went out to our customers. And the letter didn't say we've spied or we've done bad things. The letter says they're concerned that we could do bad things in the future. Well, which is it? Is it what Eric Schmidt said? Or is it that, oh, well, we could do it, you know, we could do bad things in the future. You know, this idea of, you know, making allegations and claims, and, and in fact, we can, at some point in, in this conversation, we talk about what, what are the heart of the allegations. Uh, there are almost no allegations about past conduct uh, uh, by Huawei. Uh, in, in this last 30 year history. Well, I mean, some of this also could be could be held up in top secret dossiers that could reveal 
method sources and methods if they were to reveal some of this stuff. Yeah, but listen, listen. Look at the House Intelligence Committee report. There was no allegation. Look at the 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 story that came out right after the Snowden revelations in 2014 or 2015. There was a one-day story in the Washington Post uh, where the report came out and said that the uh, House Intelligence Committee had asked the White House to conduct a classified investigation of wrongdoing by Huawei. And as you know, Operation Shot Giant was a five-year process uh, where they could not find any wrongdoing after they monitored all the communications uh, with Huawei um, uh, over those five years. And the, the, the White House in, in the, the Washington Post story uh, said that the intelligence community was very concerned that the White House classified investigation could not find wrongdoing on Huawei. And, and the White House said, well, it's, it, it's a work in progress. So the only allegation I, I am aware of that the U.S. government has made is the allegation, I'm, I'm sure you're probably more familiar with it than I am, that, that, that Huawei retained lawful intercept access capability for our equipment that we deployed in, deployed in some telecommunication networks, I, I, I believe, in, in Europe. Now, the report said, that's the only allegation I know about the U.S. government saying Huawei spies or whatever, the only allegation, House Intelligence shot giant, the, the, the Washington Post story, anything. And on that particular um, account, they said, reports said, to the point you just made, reports said that uh, that information had been declassified. This is about the retaining the lawful intercept capability. And so my question is, okay, it's declassified. We don't have to worry about sources and methods. Turn it over. I Look, I think the one thing that we can agree on is that, you know, the United States government and the NSA has clearly spied all over the United States. This is a sh or all over the world. This is a show that regularly talks about this. And I, I don't know if two bads make a right, but. No, it doesn't. No, I, but, no, but, I, couldn't, but, agree, but, but, I couldn't agree with but, you more. But I'm, look, not you, defending, you, you I'm not defending you China. You, let me finish. I'm not defending you, China. I know. You, you mentioned the Snowden leaks and, and I agree with you, but it took a an unprecedented massive disclosure and a whistleblower to bring some of these revelations to the American people. And I guess if you look at somewhere like China where the control over information and the degree to which the government surveils its own people, the chances of something like that being revealed about Huawei, to be honest, are probably even lower. So I'm sorry that what I was saying about the Snowden revelations created the impression that I was saying two wrongs don't make a right. That was not my intent. What I was trying to talk about was the fact that the revelations talked about the issue of Cisco equipment being used by the U.S. government to spy and the debate about whether they gave permission or they didn't. And I was saying, well, it doesn't matter. And I wasn't defending two, two wrongs make a right. I was making the point that governments can spy. We are talking about mechanisms that I believe are demonstrable that can prove, as I said, that there are no backdoors in our products and that the, the updates are tested and that, that we're not spying, that, that, that the processes and protocols are in place with third-party oversight uh, and we're open to discussing how to strengthen them. So please, I'm, I'm, I apologize if I gave the impression that I said two wrongs make a, a right because I certainly do not believe that. No, I, 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 I hear you. I, I understand. I think, you know, just to be clear as well, governments are going to spy in any way they can, especially very powerful ones like China and the United States. I mean, this is, it's, it's unquestionable. Oh, no, that's, why, that's why after the, uh, the OPM breach from a few years ago, that was one of the biggest by, uh, in terms of 
access to uh, this records of American citizens, former government employees, and and what have you. That um, when there was a bunch of criticism, of, uh, they they said they believed that China was behind it. There was a bunch of criticism of China, and uh, retired General Michael Hayden said, well, "Wait a second, that's within the bounds of of what governments do." You know, so he wasn't saying you know don't criticize China for doing it, but that but that intelligence gathering is what what all governments do. That that's true. I mean, the other thing too is clearly there has been some review of Huawei's of Huawei's future 5G networks, and and that they are reliable. You know, you look at somewhere like Britain, and it eased up some of the positions it had on 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 5G and Huawei. So I think you know, there's clearly a geopolitical game at play between China and the United States that has a lot more to do, or or a lot more to do with economics and business than it might have to do with spying and espionage. And many times there have been reports by government officials, although there are one or two that that go well beyond what the U.S. government is saying. And I do think that June sixteenth NTI letter, NTIA letter, is 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 is, is pretty instructive. Um, you know that often there have been comments that say it's not about the company; it's about the government of China. Now, how has some of this COVID, this COVID coronavirus pandemic, the world is embroiled in, and will be for probably the remainder of the year and into twenty twenty one? How is some of that and some of the conspiracy theories surrounding 5G and also the conspiracy theories surrounding China's role in the virus, which has demonstrably been shown to be completely uh, untrue, how has that affected business for Huawei? Wow. Well, you just threw a couple a couple different things in play. Plus, we have the impact in um, 2019 of the entity list restrictions on the semiconductor industry selling to us uh, and the more recent uh, rule of the foreign direct product uh, limitations on on and it's complicated. This wants to say it quite accurately, but even uh, tai- Taiwan-based companies that include components from America have an impact. So when you talk about impact, the the impact in 2019. I know it's not your direct question, but the impact in 2019 on our revenues was a reduction of our projected revenues of about 12 billion dollars because of the entity list. Now we have this additional factor of additional restrictions on our ability to buy semiconductors. Uh, we have uh, the coronavirus. I'm sure you saw that uh, in the first quarter of, of this year globally, I think we had a, a, a slight growth in revenue of about 1.4 percent. Uh, and uh, we do not yet have, of course, second quarter of the year is not quite over yet. We, we don't have estimates of, of, of the impact um, from uh, the pandemic um, on our revenues. Um, and so we, we, we just don't know. Um, so that, that's about as well as I can ask, answer the question. Do you want to try again on the question in case there was something you think I should be able to answer? No, that's, that, 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 that's, uh, that's sufficient. Okay. Uh, so just moving on to, to an incident that I think has, has sparked a lot of interest because you know, if you look at Huawei and its perception around the world, you know, there are a lot of technologists, a lot of very highly respected technologists who say that your systems and everything that you provide are, it's very strong. It's very good, very good equipment, trustworthy, et cetera. But the questions surrounding its connections to the Chinese government always persist. And I also think some of this is not completely unfounded, especially when you look at something like the case of Meng Wanzhou, she was arrested in Canada, you know, days later, there were two arrests of suspected Canadian spies in China by the Chinese government. And that, those two 
acts were in lockstep with the company. So when you look at something like that, how how do you not how do you not think that the public, the American people, the IC, the intelligence community, don't think that there's a direct link between the Chinese government and Huawei? Well, if th th that situation, um, and I, I, you know, I, I certainly don't know the underlying facts of what was going on there, but um, the the appearance um, is as you say. I mean, I, I'm I'm not sure that you need an intelligence agency to point out that public example of escalation. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily based on something from the intelligence agency, because I think the intelligence agencies have had a real challenge um, in uh, convincing American allies that what the U.S. says is the case is, in fact, the case. I remember vividly in, in early January uh, where the U.S. said they were going to send another delegation. They were going to send a uh, it wasn't a tranche of documents, but they were going to send uh, a, a delegation with some key information about allegations of wrongdoing by Huawei. And you can, I think it's fair to say, and, and it's classified, of course, but it's fair to say that the reaction of the UK government was a collective shrug of their shoulders, as was uh, prior conversations uh, between the US government at a classified level uh, and the German chancellor and, and the even predecessor um, of, 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 of the UK. Um, I oppose escalation in all forms. Now, if, if for example, uh, some of the broader issues about uh, the China government has said some things regarding uh, if the U.S. does various things to hurt Huawei, that, that, that China you know, may do something. And my response to that is that if, um, uh, the, if the China government was threatening to do something to Apple, no one would blink an eye if President Trump or others in his administration basically criticized China for doing it, even though Apple is a privately owned company. No one would blink an eye uh, that, it, you know, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's, and I'm not talking about the Miss Mung case. It, it, it's, it's understandable when governments respond, when other governments seem to be hurting important companies uh, within their, you know, situation. Um, regarding Miss Mung and the, the, the Canadians uh, that were seized, um, we haven't seen what's happened in terms of the facts or the or the the, the adjudication or or the resolution. Um, you know, some were understandably concerned that I believe the formal charges weren't brought against the uh, the two Canadians for uh, a much longer time than we we deem acceptable in the United States. So, moving on to uh, just a final question, I want to ask you about just generally speaking. I mean, look, the world is going to need five G. We all know this. It's we're we need faster internet. There's more and more devices online. We're going to need it. It's 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 an incredibly important thing that will need to happen in the in the next few years. And clearly, Huawei does have technology that can help the entire world. Do you think if there weren't these games, speaking as an American, if these geopolitical games weren't being played and the economic war that's that's going on between DC and Beijing, do you? really believe in Huawei's technologies and what they can do to help people around the world? Well, I, I, I believe that the kind of innovation, that robust competition among Huawei and our competitors is absolutely critical to, to continue a, a strong arc of innovation, reduce price, um, 
greater security and greater resilience. And that having Huawei in the competitive ecosystem uh, in the US and globally is, is, is critically important for everybody. Um, and I do think, as, as I've said, that there are, well, Nokia and Ericsson are only allowed to do business in the United States because they operate, operate under government monitor risk mitigation agreements. Nobody ever talks about that. Um, so there are mechanisms that there can be government monitored programs and we're happy to, to talk about them. I can't predict that if we're allowed to talk about them and if we were to agree to something like, and I don't know the details because of course it's confidential, the details of, of the government monitoring of evaluation of uh, Nokia and Ericsson's products that are sold into the U.S. I can't guarantee that, you know, the U.S. government would would settle for the same kind of thing. But I think those kinds of discussions would 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 be very helpful. Um, but in fact, when you look at this this broader issue, and 5G is, is an example about the, com the the competitiveness of the United States. What, the United States is the technological innovation leader in the world, and we've got a pretty big lead. But we have to make sure that we as a nation are bringing together private and government folks, hopefully led by the private sector, hopefully a private sector led technology industrial strategy. So this country can figure out whether and how to, to move forward and how to look for if, 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 if there needs to be greater competition in the equipment space because our competitors don't have the resources to invest in R&D. So the whole global community will be better off if there can be if there can be greater competition. The question of whether the U.S. actually needs an, an alternative to Huawei, you know, in, in the United States. I don't know. A lot of people assume that. But, you know, questions about what is the path forward for the United States for us to continue to lead vis-a-vis -vis China, which is critically important to me as an American and critically important to us and our allies. And so I hope that the distraction of, okay, trying to hurt China by hurting Huawei doesn't keep the United States from doing it. And I don't think we're doing nearly what we need to to help drive forward with technological innovation that's going to bring even greater benefits to to our citizens and organizations. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Andy. I appreciate it. You've given me and our audience a lot to think about. And I do think that it's important to hear from Huawei on these issues. And I don't feel like Huawei's been listened to and heard from enough. So I appreciate you coming on and, uh, and sharing, sharing your thoughts and the company's thoughts. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. You too. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Miss... Monsieur Kebler, comment ça va? Hello, hello, hello. How was your week? Uh, the heat has arrived. The, the heat has here, arrived. Baby. Yeah, it's been spending a lot of time outside. I think that I, um, 
went for a hike last weekend. I don't know if we've discussed this already, but it was very nice. I did a did a walk outdoors. You did a nice little hike. Where? Yeah. Um, I went to New Jersey. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow, all the way it? to Sopranos country. Yeah, yeah. the Palisades, I believe it's called. It was very nice. Brought ah, the Palisades. The dog. Yeah, that is where they used to bury bodies. Apparently, the mafia. Always got to bring it back to the mob. Yep, I do. It's my favorite. I'm also just rewatching the Sopranos right now, so it's a problem. Uh, it's all I think about. <laughs> fair, <laughs> anyway, fair enough. Worldview we, shaped by a, a mob drama. Yeah. Um, shall we talk about some uh, some blogs? Some, some cybery? Yeah, absolutely. So this one is our magnificent transportation reporter, Aaron, who consistently comes up with some real bangers. And this one is about how Uber literally turned a bike share company into garbage. I love that headline, by the way, because it's just so true. Yeah, so a couple about a month ago, there were these videos that went viral of all of these bike share bikes at a recycling center being literally shredded. It was just like piles and piles of bike share bikes, and these bikes were uh, Jump branded bikes. So Jump is one of these uh, startups that dropped a bunch of bikes in various cities that you could pick up wherever you want and leave them wherever you want. So it's like Lime Jump. Um, I'm struggling. Bird is another one. I'm struggling to think of other ones, but there, there are a bunch of different, uh, what they're called, they're called dockless bike share bikes. So in New York city, we have, um, city bike, which is the like docked bike share program where you take a bike and you take it from one dock and then you put it into another dock somewhere else. These, uh, dockless bike share bikes are ones that you pick up anywhere. You kind of find out where there are based on an app and then you take them somewhere and then you drop them off and then someone else picks them up on the app. Anyways, uh, it's been this big trend over the last few years, uh, made popular by two Chinese companies that came in and did this all over the country and then Jump and Lime and a couple other companies started doing it as well. So, uh, Aaron's story is about the founding of this company, which dates back, I think, almost 10 years, and how it had these very lofty goals uh, of making cities better, of sort of being a last mile transportation solution, of fitting in with the community rather than taking it over, um, and how it was very difficult for them to survive because uh, at some point you had all of these Chinese companies with a ton of money coming in and dumping their bikes everywhere. And and so this like very thoughtful bike share network that uh, aimed to be a part of the community was being competed with by a bunch of uh, opponents with, or competitors with very deep pockets. And so you have Jump that uh, ended up having to sell itself, or rather they decided to sell themselves to Uber for I think 400 million or something like that. Not a bad and- time change. Yeah, a lot of money. And uh, I mean, I don't know, you can question the wisdom of selling to Uber, but basically they sold to Uber and then Uber drove them directly into the ground. Um, And so he talked to, I think, six or seven former Jump employees. And the specifics here are kind of just like shocking. Um, I think the big anecdote here is that in Providence, Rhode Island, Uber after they bought Jump, dumped 
thousands and thousands of bikes in the small capital of Providence, uh, Rhode Island. I mean, it's a small city, but it's obviously a, the biggest city in Rhode Island. And people started vandalizing them and started stealing them. So what they were able to do is they took, they found the GPS chip on the jump bikes and removed them. And then they were able to break the lock because there was a, um, there was essentially <laughs> a flaw in the bike lock that allowed people to break it. So they broke it and then they would steal them, uh, which is, you know, I don't know, don't steal bikes, but we've seen this over and over again where bike share bikes have been stolen and vandalized because people hate them because the dockless ones are essentially trash. Like people leave them wherever they throw them on lawns. They, you know, they take up sidewalks, they block wheelchair uh, ramps, things like this. So this is like not uncommon, but what Uber decided to do was to hire what former employees called quote hired goons to recover these bikes. And, uh, there was one incident in which a guy ran up and tackled a small black teen girl, um, who was riding one of these jump bikes and forcibly took it from her. And he had like pepper spray on him and all this stuff. So it was essentially like a private police force working for Uber that, that did this. And it's just like, what? It's not good. It's not good. The story is riveting. You should definitely read it. Um, Yeah. It's also just like, it it says so much how Uber was just throwing money around. Right. So, uh, to destroy something, the story is about how jump grew very slowly at the beginning, but then Uber bought them and they basically put them in every American city over the course of a few months and with no real plan. And it wasn't that popular. And so, uh, eventually jump or eventually Uber sold jump to Lime, which is another one of these, uh, you know, bike share companies. And as part of that deal, all of these bikes start getting shredded. So they become, they became literal trash. Very bad. Yep. Well, I mean, we know a lot, we've done some pretty great reporting on Uber and some of their, you know, their seemingly sinister company culture. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about your story that just went up. Yep. Story just came up. It's our Mac Lammer and I, our latest on the base. We got this really strange memoir that was floated online by someone who claims to be a member of the base. And it included all these really, you know, these very detailed anecdotes that you really had to be a part of the group to know that they happened. So, you know, it definitely caught our attention and in it, it's, I mean, the, the headline kind of tells you everything you need to know. It's an acid-soaked ram sacrifice that the group undertook in Georgia. And then also, you know, talks about the FBI infiltrator that they had. And also just a weird, just a weird insight into how domestic terrorists think and what, what motivates them and why, you know, why they, they do what they do, especially at a time when things like the Boogaloo and these sort of second Civil War types are really stealing a lot of headlines across the country. So yeah, it was a it was definitely a weird one. I really uh, the image for this is is perfect by the way. Right. So I mean, we've talked about the base before. Um, you know, you you and Mac Lemeru have done really great reporting on the base, got leaked chat logs, things like this. But just a a quick reminder for anyone who hasn't read or, or heard about them. It's like, you know, a neo-Nazi terror organization founded by some dude named Norman Spear, who was later identified to be a an American guy living in Russia, correct? Yep. With potential Kremlin links. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, they have done a lot of stuff online, like a lot of very uh, hateful. There's a lot of like hate speech and hateful talking going going around here, but this spilled over into uh, real life. Um, so can you just give us like the 10 second, like what is the base best known for? Like, yes. So the base, it was, it was Norman Spears sort of project. And what he intended was to corral all the internet Nazis and created a real world insurgency. Cause he thought that there was too much talk in the neo-Nazi community online following the, the Charlottesville torch rally and, and that whole debacle and even just the pre- Trump presidency. So he created this online group that then actually became a real life terrorist organization that by January, 2020 had a nationwide FBI crackdown that arrested almost a dozen members on plots like assassination attempts, uh, plans to shoot up a Virginia gun rally, (laughs) ghost gun making, all sorts of very serious crimes and also harboring a fugitive Canadian ex-soldier, which we reported on. So it suffice to say, it was sort of this this prime example of how neo-Nazi terrorism had gotten to the place where it looked more like, or it now looks more like ISIS than it does something like the Klan. And when you get this kind of insight into sort of the intentionality of, of the people that are involved in these groups, it's particularly striking and interesting and gives you some sort of understanding of why this is happening. Because I think up until this point, we've always, I mean, the popular belief is that terrorism is only the, you know, the, the, the preoccupation of Middle Eastern jihadist organizations. And, you know, it's really not. Right, 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 right. Um, the story is very good. And I think it's probably the, one of the best, uh, pieces that you've done about the base, although there have been many. Um, but I think that this one's very insightful in terms of, um, explaining like, how they operate and also why someone would want to join as well as why someone would leave. Um, so very good blog, Ben. Grazie, grazie. Now this next one is cue the music, a return to the show of my favorite topic, UFOs. And a Senate intelligence committee confirms the U S Navy has a UFO task force. It's been a minute on the UFOs, hasn't it? It has. It has been a minute. We haven't talked about them in a while. And I just, yeah. you know, we're back. Yeah. So um, I won't go into all the background, but basically, like, you know, we knew that the U.S. Navy has had a UFO program. That's we've talked about it 1000 times. Tom DeLong's group exposed this as well as the New York Times a few years ago. And the word from the Navy for like, years, like the last two years or so was like, this was an old program. Um, yes, it existed, but it studied something else. Um, and it's over now like that. That's kind of just been the, the Navy's line. Like we don't have this program anymore, but we have heard, we've been kind of chasing for the last couple of weeks, uh, the idea that the program was either just like renamed, um, and and continued or that a new program had been spun up recently or at some point. And we got confirmation of that earlier this week when, uh, as part of the Senate appropriations bill for the director of national intelligence or like the, basically the intelligence budget, 
the House Intelligence or the Senate Intelligence Committee wants the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense to do a comprehensive unclassified report about UFOs. And so the specific um, ask here is, quote, a detailed analysis of unidentified aerial phenomena data and intelligence reporting collected or held by the Office of Naval Intelligence, including data and intelligence reporting held by the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, um, end quote. So that essentially confirms that this program still exists because they want a report on it and that the office is called the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. So we now know the name of the program. Uh, we know what office it's under. And we also know that it's active because they want, you know, they want to know what this group does and what they found, which is crazy. So crazy. Sometimes I just forget like how this... <laughs> This constant stories in the background of all this other, you know, society shaking events that have happened over the last four months. But then this these revelations just they never cease to make me just both smile, feel a little bit uncomfortable and shock me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's just like there's so much going on right now. And we've talked about this, you know ad nauseum on the show, but, you know, with the social justice uprising, as well as COVID, like, as well as an election going on, it's like some of the most powerful senators have just asked for an unclassified report on UFOs and it barely registers. It's really, barely. it's crazy. It's really it's shocking. It's totally insane. Yeah. But, uh, exciting. I, I, I'm anxiously waiting this report and it, it's, it's supposed to come within 180 days of the bill's enactment. And this is a bill that has to pass because it's just, it gives money to the intelligence committee. So this sort of thing, like these budget bills always pass because they have to, otherwise the government isn't funded. Um, and we know that the government loves to fund its, uh, intelligence gathering operations. So this is something that we can look forward to later this year, or early next yeah, something that is actually, I guess, yeah, positive. I'm optimistic about this. Can't say that about a lot of things right now. Optimistic about the aliens. It's not aliens, it's UFOs. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Everyone's like, you know it's not aliens, right? And it's like, yeah, whatever. it's still notable. Still, still, worth, still worth talking about. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, that wraps this up. All right, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.